0: Welcome to All Music Movies, a part of the All Music Podcast series and a companion podcast to All Music Books Deep Dive. Here we explore music films and documentaries rather than books and there are so many great ones, old and new. In fact, these days there seems to be a new music film or documentary every week, so we're very excited to explore this area. I'm your host, Steve Jay, so grab your popcorn, sit back and relax, enjoy the show. Let's talk music documentaries and films. We're joined once again by documentary filmmaker Danny Garcia. We had him on a few months ago to talk about his latest film, Nightclubbing, the birth of punk rock in New York City, which focused on the nightclub Max's Kansas City and the New York rock scene of the 70s. Today, we're going back to his 2014 film, Looking for Johnny, about the legendary hard-living guitarist Johnny Thunders. Welcome back, Danny.
1: Hey, thank you, man. Thank you for
0: having me. Yeah, definitely. And, and, you know, congratulations on this film. I know it's an older one, but I was and am a huge fan of Thunders and this movie. Thank you. It's a bit of a tragic tale. Um, but one of the things I wanted to ask you, you know, given that he's passed and a lot of the people in the film that spoke have are passed, your film will almost be the definitive word on Johnny Thunders. And I'm curious how that feels.
1: I mean, mean, it feels good because as a teenager, I was a huge fan of Johnny, you know, so it's an honor, if anything. I I, I never thought I could do this, you Hmm. know, back then especially. So, yeah, it is a thrill and the fact that, you know, we got people like Wolf Lure and Sylvain and Lee Childers, people who are unfortunately no longer around, it makes it even more special.
0: Definitely. There's a lot of great voices in this film. Those three that you mentioned and uh, and some other people like Bob Gruen, who I love. I think he's just a fascinating interview. Lenny K.
1: Marty Thau. Marty Thau is gone too, man. Yeah.
0: I also found interesting that that film, along with your new film, they're almost 10 years apart, but there's definitely a certain link. Yeah. Thunders was definitely a Max's guy.
1: Well, yeah, I, I, I discovered Max's "Be the Heartbreakers" album, "Life of Max Kansas City." But you know, I was fourteen or fifteen when I got that record, and I was like, "Wow, this is something else." You know, I really loved it, and so that's when the legend of Max's began in my head, I guess. You know, but yeah, there's there's definitely a link, and obviously, I wanted to dedicate a segment to the Heartbreakers in my clubbing.
2: Because they were,
1: like you say, they were a Max's band and, and Tommy Dean was actually managing Johnny at some point in the mid-70s, you know, like 76. Tommy Dean was like, you know, trying to handle Johnny. So I guess that must have been like 79 or something. Yeah.
0: Trying to. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. So you said you were 14 or 15 and and this is in Spain, right? Is that where you grew up?
1: Yeah, I grew up in Barcelona.
0: Was he a presence over there?
1: Well, he would come and do shows every few years. Yeah, he, I saw him once the last time he came around with Stevie Glasson and those guys, you know, the last lineup.
0: Yeah, I mean, I grew up in Miami, which is not the Miami it is today. And between the New York Dolls, Johnny Thunders, Max's, CB's, those were like just like the places I wanted to be. Do you remember? The first song or the album that you had was it the new york dolls was it solo and and what was its impact
1: um the first time i heard johnny thunders was on a new york dolls compilation but it was personality crisis for sure wow that was the opening track and i was like whoa what is
0: this
1: <laughs> you know? yeah i i just love the sound of that guitar and you know obviously the 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 songwriting also Johnny's voice, you know, when he sang, you know, Jet Boy and stuff, I thought I was brilliant. So I just became a Johnny Thunders convert.
0: And uh, we talked about some of the people that are in the film, and I'm curious, some of them are no longer with us, most of them are legends, and, and what was it like talking to them? And were they hard to get a hold of, or did they just want to help tell Johnny's tale?
1: Well, most, most people was very, you know, forward, coming with the idea of participating in the film, because, you know, there's a lot of love for Johnny and his friends still, you know, got a lot of love for him, you know, so a lot of people wanted to be in the film, so we ended up interviewing like 50 people for the Johnny film, which is pretty insane, you know, usually we interview like 25, maybe 20, 25 people, and so, yeah. that, so we, we had a lot of material, everybody had a lot of stories, everybody had a lot of stories to tell, and, They wanted to talk about this side of Johnny or the other side of Johnny, this or that, personal stuff, the music stuff. You know, there's a lot of stuff, basically.
0: Yeah, it's a classic rock and roll tale, that's for sure. You know, I mentioned Bob Gruen, who is a legendary rock photographer, and he had perhaps my favorite quote that I've ever read on the New York Dolls where he said, the whole point of dressing up like dolls is girls like to play with dolls, and the New York dolls wanted girls to play with them. What were your thoughts when you heard that?
1: I just thought it was a funny way of putting it. I mean, you know, the dolls coming from all this Marxist crazy tradition of people, like, you know, the theater of the ridiculous, and then the coquettes, and then all the warhol people so new york people saw them as a continuation of that and so that, that that makes sense i mean it was the glam years and stuff so you know that was the vibe and they just took it to a, a
0: whole nother level uh, yeah i mean i think it's appropriate too because they had a lot of groupies and stuff you know? which is really fascinating because at least the reaction i got from where i grew up based on that album cover is i think most people assumed that they were gay uh, and then you hear these stories, like a lot of groupies, that, you know, it just makes a lot of sense what he said. It, it fits the narrative very well.
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, they were pretty much heterosexual. So, yeah, I mean, it was it was the look. You know? It was, let's do something that's really crazy and different. <laughs> and they did. You know, and musically... Yeah, they were rock and roll, but, you know, Johnny's guitar took it to the next level. You know what I mean? He, was, he loved the Stooges, and he loved a lot of music. So, but, you know, they were originators, you know, with, along with the Stooges and so on, you know, of a new sound.
0: And also reputation. I mean, one person in the film said of Johnny that he went from he didn't do drugs to everything in excess, you know, Billy Marcia, the original drummer and bassist Jerry Nolan, both of them would die from drug overdoses and they were definitely Johnny Thunder soulmates, right?
1: But yeah, yeah, rock and roll casualty, you know. Um, partying, taking quaylots, was a red line, you know, Bowie wrote a song about him.
0: You're listening to All Music Podcasts, a member of Pantheon Media. We're speaking with Danny Garcia, the director of the documentary Looking for Johnny, about legendary guitar player Johnny Thunders.
2: Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, Go to PantheonPodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win.
1: And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package.
2: And guess what, Rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. You
0: know, uh, one of the other things is, and you know, this is part of the legend, Malcolm McLaren And I knew he had a relationship with the New York Dolls. He became the manager of the Sex Pistols. But I didn't realize it was so early that he worked with them. Uh,
1: That was 75 when the Dolls were dropped from Mercury. And Sylvain met Malcolm, who was coming out of the Chelsea Hotel. And, you know, that's how they, they just linked up. And Sylvain told him that the Dolls were about to break up. Well, they were, in fact, breaking up because they had no deal, and Johnny and Jerry were fucked up on heroin, and then uh, Arthur was completely, you know, was an alcoholic. So the adults were, were in trouble, you know, and Bob Gulen says Malcolm D probably saved their lives because he put Johnny and Jerry into, you know, rehab as well as Arthur. When they were doing those shows... Of the hippodrome or something, you know, the the red button leather show. Right,
0: right.
1: Some of the shows, Jerry missed them because he was in rehab. So Spider from Pure Hell played drums. You see this black drummer playing with the uh, dolls? That's Spider from Pure Hell. So, and that's before they go to Florida and break up. Malcolm, I, I think, you, you know, he was a chancer, and he was, you know, whatever, but I think it was a cool dude, you know. I never met him personally, but I think it was cool in that aspect, you know, at least. He actually did save their lives, you know, for a while.
0: Definitely a visionary. I'm, I'm rereading a book about the Sex Pistols tour of America, which was only 12 days long. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, That's start, bizarre. Oh, my man. God. And it starts in, of course, like Georgia or Texas or something. And it's, 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 it's a great book. There's a lot in your movie, and I thought I knew Johnny Thunder as well, but there's a lot of little interesting factoids, like for instance, uh, I think it was Malcolm McLaren that took him to England, and they opened for Rod Stewart at Wembley Stadium?
1: That was the the dolls before they they signed to Mercury. They got invited to play with Rod Stewart's bases you know, in Wembley. It's not like Wembley Stadium, you know, it's like a Wembley arena. But yeah, they played with them, and Marty Thao told me that Mick Jagger came to check them out, you know, maybe signed them to Rolling Stone Records, but that didn't happen because you he know, wasn't impressed. I think those two shows weren't that great. And Billy, Billy Marshall was still on drums. I mean, you know, the, those were like a local New York sensation. You know, it was early, early stages. That's before Jerry, right? That's when Billy go, I mean, they go to England and Billy dies there. So this is very early stuff. And I think, you know, I mean, Billy wasn't a great drummer. You know, I mean, kudos to him for starting punk rock and everything, but he wasn't a great drummer, like, technically and stuff, like like Jerry Nolan was, you know what I mean? So you can imagine, I mean, a band is only as good as the drummer, right? Mm-hmm. So you can imagine in a good night, you know, they might be good, but in a bad night, they might have been terrible. I mean, and judging from those demos that they did with Billy Mush and stuff, You can tell that they were, like, all over the place. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's what happened. They went to England, Billy died, they come back, audition drummers. Marky Ramon is among the auditioning drummers, but Jerry gets the gig. And apparently, Sylvain told us that Billy had told him that if anything happened to him, that Jerry should be his replacement, (laughs) which is very... It's very fucked up shit when you think about
0: it. Still, so Sylvan was really great in this movie. It's just so interesting to hear, but he seemed to think or say that the dolls' breakup was at Johansson's insistence.
1: Well, I think I think it was a bit of everything. You know, I mean, Jerry and Johnny obviously wanted to get back to New York to get some proper heroin that they weren't scoring in. Yeah, well, Florida. Yep. <laughs> That's where Jerry's mom was at. And yeah, I mean, it was a mix of things, you know, it wasn't just one thing, but you got Malcolm staring things up. Then you got Jerry and Johnny strung out who want to go back to New York. And then you have David going, all of you are replaceable. I mean, it's not a great recipe for, you know, let's have a great time together shit was going to happen, you know, they were going to break up one way or another. I mean, you know, especially working with junkies, it's impossible. So unless the whole band are junkies, which is what happened with the Heartbreakers later on. Right. So, you know, because you got to go cope heroin, then do it, then go sound check, then probably shoot more herring, then do the show, then go somewhere else and shoot more herring, then fall asleep at some point, and then the next day, start all over again mm-hmm. i mean it's a it's a full-time job you know just being a heroin addict right right and, and everything else is secondary you right. know the music the family that your, your kids whatever so you can't imagine man you know it was a circus
0: so when they break up johnny begins what i thought was a pretty fascinating solo career with some high points and a lot of low points do you have a favorite solo period or an album or a song of his that, that you consistently go back to?
1: Well, I mean, there's not that much to choose from, even, even though, I mean, he was pretty prolific considering the circumstances, and also he needed to generate more cash to get more drugs, so he was all constantly on the road and recording and stuff. But, I mean, uh, Hurt Me, I love uh, solo. I mean, you know, I love all of them, man. You know, Kiss Around, even Copycats. I wasn't that keen on because, you know, I was keen on the Heartbreaker sound. LAMF is probably one of my three favorite albums.
0: Yeah, and I do love So Alone. I, I love that record.
1: So Alone is great. I mean, uh, and, and the stuff he was doing with um, the last lineup, it was great, you know, all that socially conscious stuff help the homeless and children are people too and all wow. that stuff i thought that was really really great stuff you know so it's a bummer that he died before that last album would have been recorded in, in new orleans you,
0: know? you mentioned the later uh versions of the band and i noticed uh, there were a lot of european musicians in the band and, and you interviewed quite a few of them yeah how did that come about was he just living in europe and putting bands together as as needed
1: uh, I mean, basically, he was traveling between New York and London and Paris and Sweden throughout his life. I mean, he had this girlfriend in Sweden for a long time, who is the mother of Jamie, his daughter, who's Swedish. So he had, he had roots there already, you know, so he was always going back and forth. Stevie Glasson, was this great guitarist that played with him in the last years is Swedish. He was recruiting people all over the shop, you know, like um, the drummer was from London, then the bass player from New York, along with Jamie, the sax player, and they had Allison as a backing vocalist. I think Johnny was always not copying, but you know, I think he always looked up to Willie Deville. You know, Willie had done that album in New Orleans, and it was actually living in New Orleans when Johnny went there and died. So I think Johnny was sort of following Willie Deville's steps, you know, because Willie is a master, was a master songwriter, and singer, and performer, and guitar player. It was amazing and so underrated. Johnny and Jerry, those guys recognize that. That's why I wanted to include that little bit in Nightclubbing, where you have Donna S.J. talking about ming Deville and how she remembers talking to jerry nolan and jerry was like watch this guy you know he's the epitome of cool you know and mm-hmm. it's true i mean musically ming the were something else oh, definitely real vocally and stuff if not probably the best band out of the whole cbg's maxis thing you know mm.
0: you're listening to all music podcasts a member of pantheon media We're speaking with Danny Garcia, the director of the documentary Looking for Johnny, about legendary guitar player Johnny Thunders. What do you think of the notion that is expressed in the film uh, by various people? And it's something I heard all the time, is that people would go see Johnny Thunders because they thought he might die on stage.
1: Well, I mean, Johnny liked to exaggerate as well. You know, he was playing that part. You know, like well, I'm so high, I'm about to die. You know? <laughs> and 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 a lot of people are very gullible. And and also there was a chance that he could, you know, pass out on stage. And who knows? I mean, it wouldn't be the first case. There's other people. <laughs> it happens. So yeah, I guess there was a there was a high chance of that happening. But you know. He was like a like a I don't know like an Italian bull you know pretty mm. resistant you know and also he was he was playing out that part you know that oh look at me I'm so high you know
0: yeah, I saw him up here probably a half dozen times in Boston or something and one was at a tiny nightclub and I was probably three feet from the stage and he came out and he was just a wreck he did fall down on stage and he had like um, a glass of whiskey or something that is between his legs and it's spilled and he's trying to stand up. They brought him off the stage and and somebody came out and said, we're going to uh, make sure, you know, Johnny's okay. And he's not having a heart attack. We'll be right back. And obviously, obviously they gave him something backstage because he came out full of energy and just a tremendous, one of the best times I've ever seen him. He just tore it up. So
1: he loved cocaine as well, you know. So you know they would do that speedball thing. Same with Jerry, you know. They were very vicious, those guys. You know, they were very, very into substances.
0: Speaking of vicious, uh, a couple of punk legends tried to work with Johnny. One was Sid Vicious, and one was Didi Ramon, and and neither of those went very well, did they?
1: Um, I mean, those guys were like followers, you right? Know? I mean, Didi was hanging out with them and obviously chinese rocks and you know that's the connection uh, i remember phyllis telling me that she always told him that you know and jerry thought that Didi would have been a great bass player for for the heartbreakers yeah and he, and he was a junkie too so you know he would have the perfect situation there you know? <laughs> but um sebison was a total fan
0: hmm.
1: uh, you know he would follow johnny around when he was doing those gigs at the speakeasy in london Right after the Heartbreakers, like he was there all the time. And, you know, he got on stage once with Johnny, but his bass playing was so terrible, they had to switch him off. Right? They, they didn't plug him in. But he was there, he was jumping and doing his thing, you know, yeah. with Johnny on stage. So,
0: yeah, I love that story. That's told in the movie that they just didn't plug him in. And, and that's perfect, you know.
1: But Johnny liked it. Johnny knew them, I mean, they knew each other and stuff. And, and Johnny liked him. I mean, that's why he wrote the song Sad Vacation for him.
0: Johnny got really sick beyond drugs, and that comes up in the movie. And eventually he does go to New Orleans, which is where he died in 1991. I was shocked to hear he was only 38 years
1: old. I mean, God knows when you're shooting up heroin, what else you're shooting up? Because, you know, the drug dealers, they cut it up with whatever, you know, talcum powder, you know, baby powder, whatever. So you don't know what you're shooting up. And... I think the saddest part of the film is when he's in Japan and he goes to the doctors desperately, and they say it's there's nothing we can do for you, you know. And he goes home like the elephants do, and then he finds his place to die, which is New Orleans, like just like an elephant. It's very really sad. That's really sad.
0: It's very sad. But there are some differences of opinions on the hows and whys of his death. And a hot shot, a ransacked room with all of his stuff gone, but the police don't investigate at all. They just wrote it off.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a really interesting story that's not on the film. Rachel Amido told me that she went to um, a medium with Johnny's sister, and <laughs> apparently, you know, there was you know, there was a connection. Johnny showed up apparently and was communicating, and the sister didn't believe nothing. And then, you know, the guy, the medium, started telling her all this stuff that he was getting from the other side, you know, and that was very personal. That Only she and Johnny and the mom would know. And the sister started crying and blah, blah, blah. And the reply was that his body gave up, like his cells freaked out. And it's very interesting. I mean, I don't know if you believe in this or you think it's bullshit or whatever, but it really matches with everything that happened. Because all these stories about kids, Giving him acid and then he freaked out and what? That's an so bullshit. He went there to get high. I think he got cocaine and he was going to get high with some kids. He passed away, like that, which is, coincides with what the medium got. And then those kids just robbed him. You know, they took the passport, the guitars. I don't know. The, obviously, the cash they had, some silk suits, whatever they could steal, and they run away with it. Like any street kid would do, you know. The rest is just bollocks, you know. Like a lot of stories. Like, you know, there's always going to be stories when there's like a mysterious death and stuff. But, but yeah, but that story of the medium is quite fascinating because it really matches what happened there. I think, you know. I mean, his body gave up. He was he was sick. He had leukemia. He had like this terrible lump in the back back of his leg or something, you know. It was just a matter of time, you know. When you're sick, you're sick. If doctors tell you there's nothing we can do for you, go home. You know, it doesn't look very good. It doesn't look very promising. Yeah.
0: And, you know, I mean, he was on that downward spiral for a long time. It was still a shock when I heard it. He was looking
1: bad. He He was looking really, really bad. He was looking really rough. If you look at those pictures, Uh, when he does the the Torenhosen session in in Germany before he heads back to New York and before he goes to New Orleans, he looks terrible, Yeah, like the worst ever. So, you know, it's not surprising. It's really sad, but it's not surprising that he passed away shortly after.
0: Yeah. Uh, I noticed a recent Facebook post uh, that you post of you outside St. Peter's in New Orleans, and I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, did you go there just out of respect, or were you working on, you know, investigating? Well, or? that's
1: that's an old photo. Oh, it is. That's from the time where we were shooting there. But I went, I went back there last November actually for my birthday, just to hang out, and I stayed there. And It's a lovely place. Wow. It's a St. Peter's Inn, right? Yep. Yep. I didn't I didn't stay in the room where Johnny died because that was taken, but I stayed next door. And there was no paranormal activity, nothing like that. I had a lovely time, so I recommend everybody to go. I'll put it on the list. Last question for you. Uh, what
0: do you think Johnny Thunder's legacy is?
1: Well, I think it's the music, you know. I mean, uh, it's the music, it's the songs. I mean, there's a lot. I always say the same is that there's a love you can learn from Johnny Thunder's. And you know, and the best about him is his songs, the song, the sound of his guitar, his technique. Even though it was rudimentary, that unique sound of his, and his attitude, his sense of style, uh, his voice, the way he sang. There's a lot of stuff you to learn from Johnny. Just don't be become a junkie because you want to be like Thunder's, <laughs> because. You know, he's an anti-drug walking advertisement. Well, he was when he was around. You don't want your best things in the pawn shop, you know what I mean? Don't be like that, you know what I mean? You have to learn from people's mistakes. And And I say this because I know great musicians that became junkies trying to imitate Thunders, who was trying to imitate Keith Richards, by the way. So you don't have to do that, you know, to be cool, you know?
0: Very well said, Danny. Thank you very much for joining us. It's Danny Garcia. One of his older films, we've been talking about, Looking for Johnny, about Johnny Thunders. His new movie, Nightclubbing, The Birth of Punk Rock in New York City, is streaming all over the place. And he's got a pretty good catalog of of stuff, including Steve Bader's and some other stuff. And I may have to check some of these out and reach back out to you, Danny.
1: Anytime, man. My pleasure. Have a good one.
0: All Music Movies is part of the All Music Podcast Series and a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network.